case some of you might be wondering who are visiting with us, we, we, you might have noticed we have kind of a long greeting time there in the middle. And uh, we do that on purpose. Um, when you look at the New Testament, it talks about God's people coming together. The most common thing it says is that they come together to encourage and build up one another. So there's this real uh, horizontal element to their gatherings together. And that's, that's how their worship is. Uh, in the New Testament, that's the most common thing. And Thank you. I really thought it was on. It was a red button and everything. And um, thank you, Barrett. You're my hero. But that's the most common thing. You see this uh, horizontal element in the New Testament. And, uh, and uh, we sometimes we have a really strong vertical element and almost no horizontal. And so we do that for a purpose. We, we want to say that the ways that we honor God are as much as about how we encourage one another and talk with one another and build up one another doing this as it is about our focus on Him. He's as honored by this as He is by this. And so we do it deliberately in case you're wondering why we do that, this crazy long greeting time. There's actually some method to the madness. Not a lot, but a little bit. So. We're continuing this morning with our look at Paul's letter to the Romans, returning to chapter 8. We're picking up at verse 5 and working through to verse 8 of that same chapter. A few sermons ago, we looked at verse 1 where we focused on the uh, unbelievable truth that in spite of the fact that all humanity stood condemned before God in their own unrighteousness, there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We then looked at a subsequent study at verse 2 where we saw a couple things. We firstly drove home the truth that this declaration of no condemnation was not a blanket pronouncement for all humanity, but was directed at a particular subset of people, namely all those who are in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we looked at the reality that as part and parcel of what God has done through Jesus, He set us free from bondage to the law. And the result of that liberation was not that we become a law unto ourselves, but instead that we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God who leads and guides us into conformity with the sort of life that the law actually codifies and describes, but it just can't produce it. It's powerless to produce it, the life that it describes. In our last look at chapter 8, we concentrated on verses 3 and 4, where we saw four things. One, what the law could not do, which is make us right with God. We then saw why the law couldn't do it. It's because of the weakness of our sinful flesh, our sinful selves, and because the law can't deal with God's holy anger over our unrighteousness. We then saw, thirdly, how God did what the law could not do by sending Jesus in the flesh to condemn sin or to deal with sin through his body, through his life and his death. And we saw, fourthly, why God did all that. And it's because God doesn't just want to fix us. He doesn't just want to fix us. He wants us. He wants to be with us. And if we're going to be with a holy God, and He has to do more than just pardon us. He has to do more than just forgive us. He has to make us holy people. Which then brings us to the verses before us this morning, verses 5 to 8. And in looking at this, it's helpful to keep in mind what's going on in chapter 8 as a whole. One way to summarize it is to say this. After taking all this time in the lead up to this, in early chapters of this letter, to talk about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ because of our hopeless and desperate condition, 
Paul shifts gears at chapter 8 and starts talking about what God has also done and is still doing in us by means of His Holy Spirit. So, a lot of time talking about what God has done for us, and now he's talking about what God has done and is doing in us by His Holy Spirit. So, the, the, the uh, declarative, the forensic, external righteousness, whatever language you want to use, that has been imputed to us, that is Christ's righteousness credited to us, that righteousness is accompanied by and followed up by this restorative, reparative, uh, molding, shaping work of the Holy Spirit who brings us from the inside out into conformity with the character of the one who saved us. The shorthand way of saying that is to say that by His Spirit, God makes us to be what He has already declared us to be in Jesus. By His Spirit, He makes us to be what He's already declared us to be in Jesus. That's one way of summarizing what's, uh, what's in view here in chapter 8. Now, if you recall in our last study, we saw at the very end of our time, verse 4 of Romans 8, that tells us essentially that the purpose of our justification of being made right with God was our sanctification for reasons which we've already rehearsed so that we can not only be with God, but so that we will be like Him. Not just with Him, but like Him. So all the ways that sin has distorted and marred God's image, which is still within us, but it's distorted, it's fallen, it's marred. All the ways it's been distorted and marred, all that's going to be removed. All that's going to be repaired and restored to what it was before the fall of humanity into sin and misery. And in addressing that, Paul used two phrases at the end of verse 4, talking about those who walk according to the flesh versus those who walk according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to flesh, those who walk according to the Spirit. Um, the distinction between those two things, uh, we're going to start to look at this morning in verses 5 to 8. There will be more to say throughout the rest of the chapter. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment and pray. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please hear us now as we ask for your Spirit to lead and guide us, as you promised he would do. And it is especially fitting that we do so today with these verses and in this chapter that is so centered on your Spirit's work within us and through us and for us. And so we do ask this. We come seeking the help that only you can give. And we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen now to the verses that are before us, backing up a little bit to provide a little more context, starting at verse 1. We get to the bold verses. That's where we're focusing today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. Now there's three things I want us to think about in these verses. Nothing terribly complicated, but I think they're important. Uh, Firstly, and fairly obviously I think Paul has in view here a fundamental twofold distinction between people on this planet. He, He has these two categories into which everybody fits. There are those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit. As we've already seen in this chapter, Paul is going to major on what it means for God's people to be indwelt by and led by the Spirit of God. He's going to major on that, but as part of talking about that and highlighting that, he's going to draw a contrast between that reality and its polar opposite, which is living according to the flesh. So what does Paul mean by these distinctions? When Paul talks about people who live according to the flesh, when Paul uses that word, flesh, he's not so much thinking about people who are... um, given over to various forms of sensuality, although that might be part of what characterizes them. But what Paul is referring to a little more broadly than that are people who live purely and simply according to their fallen, sinful human nature, uninterrupted by anything else, without being influenced by any other thing. That's what he means by flesh. He's talking about people who simply act and think in ways that seem natural and right to them from within their fallen, sinful state. In contrast to that, Paul talks about people who live according to the Spirit, by which he means people who, to be sure, are still capable of acting and thinking and feeling according to their sinful human nature. But here's the difference. There are people in whom God's Spirit has taken up residence. God's, the Spirit of God has taken up residence within His people. Now, what does that mean? Well, in a way that we cannot fully explain or understand, beyond what the Scriptures give us, which is something but not everything, but which we know about because God has told us a bit, God sends His Spirit to dwell within His people, not just corporately, but individually. And The Spirit coming to do so brings about, in the first instance, a transformation. Changing that person from being spiritually dead, that is spiritually unresponsive to God or to the things of God, to being spiritually alive. Spirit comes, they're rendered spiritually alive so that people people can and do respond once the Spirit changes them to... God's special revelation of himself in the Lord Jesus. This is the sort of thing that's actually talked about in Titus 3. Maybe you've read these words before. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When Paul talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, when Paul uses that language of regeneration and renewal, he's talking about this invasion, if you will, of the Holy Spirit into the heart of an unbeliever, which affects the spiritual transformation that regenerates them, renews them, renders them spiritually alive, and thus newly 
and permanently capable of responding to the things of God. So, as we saw early on in this study of Romans, apart from this work, apart from that work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the most that people in the flesh are capable of getting or understanding on their own are the most basic rudimentary facts about God. That is, that He's real, that He exists, you know, that He's powerful. This sort of thing we saw in Romans 1, right? It's talking about uh, when it discusses people who are without excuse. Remember that passage? Saying that all people, all people without excuse for at least this much knowledge of God, and that is what He's revealed about Himself through His creation. Romans 1, remember those words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they, though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's Romans 1. But these same people, while certainly being without excuse for not being willing to acknowledge the truth about God's powerful existence, are also those whose hearts have been darkened, as the passage says. There are those for whom any spiritual realities beyond those most basic ones are simply incomprehensible. They simply cannot be grasped apart from the renewing, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, of God's Spirit, which we just read about. This fundamental incomprehensibility is the reality referred to in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, where Paul writes this, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, he says. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no one has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then Paul says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him. They're foolish to Him. And He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians is the person he's now talking about in Romans 8 who lives according to the flesh. The person in whom the Spirit of God has not taken up residence who's not yet been rendered spiritually alive and responsive to the things of God. And so Paul, with his language here, divides all humanity into these two camps. Those who are indwelt by and changed by and under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, those who are not. 
Leads to the second thing I want us to notice this morning. Not only Paul's teaching that there are two kinds of people in the world, but also the language that he uses to talk about these two kinds of people and what sets them apart. He talks about those who have set their minds on the things of the flesh over against those who have set their minds on the things of the Spirit. A little bit further on, verse 7, Paul says that the mind that's set on the things of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. With the implication, then, that the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit will be one that is at peace with God because it does submit or conform to God's law. So one of the things that distinguishes one sort of person from the other is their mindset, a particular way of viewing the world, seeing the world through a particular lens or according to a recognizable pattern. How can we think about this? Start with the person who has mind, whose mind is set on the things of the flesh. Again, the word flesh has a broader meaning than just fleshly things or sensual things. It's referring to people who live purely and simply according to their fallen human sinful nature. Uninterrupted by anything else. People who simply act and think in ways that feel right to them within their fallen state. He's talking about people who wake up every morning... And put their feet on the floor. And from that moment forward, all the way through to the point when their eyelids close and sleep at the end of the day, are entirely self-referential. That is, there are people whose ultimate point of reference for every thought, feeling, decision, action, inaction, is themselves... Or sometimes other people or some situation. There's lots of ways to say it, but, but their thoughts are entirely self-referential, entirely bounded by this world and all that is in it. What do I think about this or that? What do I want to do today? What should I avoid doing? How should I spend my time today? How should I spend my money? What can I do today that will move me closer to accomplishing my goals or fulfilling my dreams? What's missing? What's missing in that sort of line of questioning? What's missing is anything bigger than this world and this life. Often anything bigger than oneself. Their thought processes, actions, decisions are completely self-referential, bounded by this life and this world. That is the shape. That is the pattern of the mind that is set on the things of the flesh. That is the perspective that Paul says in verse 7 does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. And this perspective is further described by Paul as that which is hostile to God. Not so much because it's necessarily overtly rebellious, although it may be, but simply by being a mindset that gives no regard to the person of God or the law of God. It's a way of thinking that has no need for God, no place for God. It's, it's not interested in whether God is there or in what God has said or what he might have revealed if he did say something in his word. Just not interested. The person who rejects such things might not regard that rejection as being hostile to, to God, but that is precisely how God sees that. He sees 
that sustained disinterest in him and what he's doing as hostility. That's how he's reading it. Because at the end of the day, a rejection of God's truth is a rejection of the God who authored the truth. It's a rejection of Him. So it is for the person whose mind is set on the things of the flesh. Over against that, in contrast to that, Paul talks about the person whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit. Such a person is an entirely different position relative to God. But you see, if and when God's Spirit does move and work within a person's life and heart, things change. They must change. Things happen. Things are different, radically different, because for that person, it's no longer the case that the only guiding reality in their life is their own fallen, sinful you know, existentially culpable yet spiritually unresponsive hearts, right? There's, there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. God's Holy Spirit, whose presence has rendered that person alive spiritually, and they are now willing and able to comprehend and respond to spiritual realities in a way that they were not before. A spirit that engenders a genuine love for the Lord because the Spirit loves the Lord. A spirit that gives good gifts to his people, that brings forth good fruit from human hearts. A spirit that has never, ever failed. That has never been hindered or prevented from accomplishing what he has determined to accomplish. With any single person. This is the other sort of person that Paul talks about. A person whose mind is set on the things of the spirit. Paul uses that phrase, things of the Spirit, but without going into any detail at this point at least as to what those things are. However, as you read more widely in the New Testament, when you start looking around outside of Romans, what you discover is that the Spirit's role and work is very much centered upon guiding God's people into all the truth. And in particular, the truth about the person and work of Jesus. In short, as Stott puts it, uh, the Spirit's main role is to show Christ to us And to form Christ in us. Show Christ to us and form Christ in us. And so within this sort of person, while their sinful, fallen human nature remains, there's also, right alongside all of that, the Spirit of God dwelling within them. A Spirit who is Himself God, who loves God the Father, wants to glorify and honor God the Son, who is given to guide God's people into the truth, and so lifts their head up to take in a whole new horizon. It's like if you can imagine a person walking along a trail whose gaze is fixed on her feet. Never looks up or around, but keeps looking at her feet, plodding along one foot in front of the other until at some point she looks up And she lifts her head up and she looks around and sees this whole new horizon. Sees that the trail actually is quite high up. It runs along the edge of a mountain and over to the right everything just drops away and there's this magnificent panoramic view of valley with a sparkling river and trees and leaves of every conceivable color. Off in the distance are outlines and silhouettes of bluish purple mountain ranges and the the scene takes your breath away. Once that happens, once once she's looked up and taken in that view, 
Her walk is forever changed. She still may look down at her feet some, maybe a lot sometimes. It's an old habit. It's felt comfortable for a long time, but she cannot deny what she's seen. She can't suppress it anymore, doesn't want to suppress it. The magnetic beauty of what she's seen has permanently affected her. She finds herself over time more and more drawn to and captivated by the new horizon, less and less enamored with or inclined to return to her former practice of just plodding along, eyes on the trail, watching her steps, one foot in front of the other. Now, in many ways, that's a terrible analogy, but it'll have to do for the moment. And as terrible as it is, uh, and even clumsy in some ways, there is a sense in which it is exactly the sort of thing that the indwelling Spirit of God does. To and for and within a person. The Spirit lifts their gaze and their understanding up, gives them eyes to see and ears to hear things that they never saw before. Things they never heard before. Gives them a perspective that is not bounded by this life and this world. A perspective that is not entirely self-referential, but is instead God-referential. Once you've looked up and around, once you've seen these things, there's simply no going back. You cannot pretend you haven't seen what you clearly have seen. Or that you don't know what you clearly now do know. That doesn't mean that the person whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit walks around singing hymns and quoting Bible verses all day, both of which are productive things to do. It doesn't mean that this person is only ever thinking about the next life or what it would be like to spend eternity with God. The person whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit or is patterned or biased in that direction, that person is very much engaged with this life and this world, but with a difference. One writer puts it this way. He says, even when the Christian is thinking about this life, he's thinking about it Christianly. He or she may be a woodcarver or a truck driver, a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, a paralegal. He or she may be someone in a fairly menial position or maybe a CEO. It doesn't matter. In everything that is done, he or she looks at it Christianly, biblically, has a frame of reference which is entirely different from the flesh. And the Apostle is saying here that God's work of saving grace always produces a heart change in believers that manifests itself in their lives so that their attitudes, their goals, their purposes are different from those of unbelievers. It's a different grid that you're pulling everything through now. Can you see the gospel obligation, if I can put it that way? that those verses place upon us as the people of God. To be sure, it's also an opportunity and a privilege, but there's a real urgency and obligation, I think, that flows out of our consideration of these truths. Because the truth is this, there really are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are indwelt by God's Spirit, those who are not, and the nature of that difference is something that ultimately only God can change, ought to make us a praying people for God to change. And do that. And while it's good to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of reasons, the kind of prayer we want to always be praying is this concerted, specific, continual prayer for God to move in the hearts of men and women who do not know Him. And the thing that ought to move us in that direction is compassion. Compassion. 
to see people delivered from a mindset and a perspective that is merely self-referential or bounded by this world. Compassion to see people delivered from a view that cannot see beyond this world and this life and this time. Compassion to see people delivered from a perspective that is limited to what the human mind, with all its flaws and limitations, can conceive of. All around us are people who do not and cannot think outside the box that is this life. And it is terrible, and it is tragic, and it is suffocating, and looming before them is the inevitability of a grave that has no hope and beyond which, from their perspective, there is nothing but silence and blackness and non-existence. And yet those in whom the Spirit has moved know otherwise. They know, among other things, that the souls of men and women do not cease to exist. They go on to eternity and to a judgment before a just and holy God. And the grave that to the unbeliever seems like the end is in fact only a continuation and an expansion of the death they've already tasted in his life. We've already tasted it in this life. And that's the third and final thing I want you to notice in the passage. Paul says that the mind that is set on the things of the flesh is death. He doesn't say it leads to death. He says it is death. He says that the, he's saying that the reality of death, death as separation from God, in the mindset of the flesh, it's already started. The reality has already begun. The process has already started for the person whose mind is set only on the things of this world. And the complete absence of God from their life and thoughts now will become the utter separation from God and all the blessings that flow from Him, even to unbelievers in this world and in this life. All the collateral benefits that flow to those who are unbelieving in this world, all of those things at death will be removed in the wake of God's judgment. But for those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit, who are in Christ, there is hope and assurance, and that hope is what we have, and that is what, and it is what the tragedy of the fleshly mindset ought to compel us, compel us to speak about and to proclaim and move us with compassion to offer to a world that continues to suppress the truth about its very own Creator. May God use us then and move us to pray for all those around us whose minds are still on the things of the flesh of this world and to show and tell them of the hope that is to be found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because apart from that, there is no hope. As Paul says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that should move us out. And Paul's going to say a lot about that when he gets to chapter 10. Of Romans. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, those are hard words. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because there are millions and millions who believe otherwise. And yet you've said clearly it's not the case. 
So, Father, um, please do move us by your Spirit and animate us. Uh, give us courage to speak and to live in ways to live in ways that invites people into knowing you and to speak in ways that brings the words of life, eternal life to them, telling them about the Lord Jesus, uh, telling them as the broken and sinful and grateful people that we are, grateful that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, Please move us by these truths that talk about the things that you have done and are doing in the world, the ways that your spirit works. Please move us to live in ways that cooperate with and are congruent with what you're doing in this world, which includes using us in our prayers, in our words, in our speech, in our action, uh, in ways that you're not required to do, but you've chosen to do. So uh, we thank you for the privilege. Please remind us daily of that privilege. And please move us with compassion. Um, We pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. We're going to take up an offering now for those who want to support the work of this church and a number of different ministries that we support through this church through the year. And if you're visiting with us, please understand we're not asking you to give. We're glad that you're here. And we hope that you will have gained some good things from your time here this morning.